This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 42. We continue on looking at the life of Joseph tonight. We'll be looking at the whole chapter of Genesis 42. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there so that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. 
but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he was said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? And they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would ready our hearts to receive this word, that we would see your work in your people, your provision for them, Uh, that even this text would point us to the hope that we have in Christ, who has redeemed us from our sins, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Last week we saw Joseph become the ruler of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself and able to act on Pharaoh's own authority. We saw that after his 13 years of enslavement and imprisonment, he was not only a free man, but a prosperous and powerful man. He was now married. He had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He had storehouses of food in a time of famine and was the food broker for the entire known world, as other lands did not prepare as Egypt had. In the naming of his sons, Joseph acknowledged how God had blessed him and helped him and prospered him in his land of affliction. It seemed that Joseph was quite content to start a new life in Egypt. Part of that was necessity. 
once you're in charge of running a country, it could be difficult to drop that and leave. (laughs) But even as he named his first son Manasseh, the meaning attached to it was, God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Joseph, while remaining faithful to God in a pagan land, has basically moved on with his life. There's no going back, or so he seems to think. But this whole story of Joseph's life and trials has been a study in God's providence and his provision for his people. Though there has been much struggle and sorrow and hardship along the way for Joseph, all of it is serving ultimately greater purposes for not only Joseph, but all of God's people. And so tonight we come to the part of the story where God's providence and provision to Joseph begin to serve the good of the people of Israel and to reconcile and restore what sin has broken. We'll look at this text tonight in three points. First, there is a task in verses 1 through 5. The famine hits Canaan, and knowing that there is food in Egypt, Jacob sends his sons, minus one, to go buy some. And second, there is a test in verses 6 through 20. Joseph, though yet unknown to his brothers, puts a challenge before them. But in third, we see torment in verses 21 through 38. Jacob is not particularly receptive to what Joseph has proposed So we have task and test and torment. These are our points for this evening. So first we have a task in verses 1 through 5. We saw at the end of the last chapter that the famine was severe in all lands, affected all nations and all peoples. Now this, of course, would have included Canaan, where Jacob and his remaining sons were. And Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. We don't know exactly how he learned this, but it was pretty common for traffic to move from Egypt and through Canaan to points northward and eastward, so that word would have got around fairly quickly, especially if Egypt was the only place around that had food. Of course, this too is all in God's hands and according to his providence. Now, it should be noted that God has not spared his people from this famine. We often read this story and we think of it in terms of the family dynamic, but there's more to it than that. We live in a country where even in the worst of agricultural years, few, if any, are going to starve. There are many layers of reserves and provisions and financial and economic help for situations of famine. That's not how things were in the ancient world. Famine would have been hard, would have been especially hard for Jacob's clan as they were wandering nomads without much land of their own. Jacob was rich, but he and his descendants and property were particularly vulnerable if a famine struck. Sometimes God's providence includes his people going through trials, trials that can be hard, and dark and destructive. And a family in a situation like Jacob's would be in a dire situation facing a famine and not knowing where they were going to get food. This is laid out in Jacob's statement in the first two verses of our chapter tonight. There is a certain desperation in his words. 
He says, why do you look at one another? Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. This was not merely a trip to go buy some food for the future. It was an urgent need. Life or death matter. It required immediate action. This all because God had allowed his people to go through this famine. We as God's people ought to keep in our minds that as we face trials, we may not know why they come. But we can know with certainty that God is using them and working in them, even if we never find out why in this life. We see that the ten older sons of Jacob go on this journey. This means that, among other things, Judah is once again living in or at least working with his father's house. The last time we'd heard from Judah, he had dwelt separately among the pagan Canaanites. Now Judah is going to be very important in this story later. But then we also see that Benjamin is kept home. Now why is this? Well, though much time has passed, it seems it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks and Jacob is still playing favorites among his sons. Now, there might be some practical and prudential reasons to not send all of his sons to Egypt. It's a long and dangerous journey, and any number of bad things could happen on the way or in Egypt. But keeping Benjamin back is not a neutral act. Benjamin was the youngest son. He would have been an adult by now, by the time we come to this chapter, it would have been over 20 years since Joseph's departure when we add together the 13 years of servitude and imprisonment and then the seven years of plenty. It's been at least 20 years. But still, as the youngest, Benjamin was probably the least experienced and capable of his brothers. But what is also going on here is that we still see, after all these years, an extension of Jacob's favoritism towards Rachel, and towards Joseph. Jacob is still favoring Benjamin above all his brothers, and he doesn't want anything to happen to this last son of his favorite wife, since Rachel and Joseph were already gone. So the other ten sons set off for Egypt to buy some food for the famine. And after this, we come to our second point, a test. In verses 6 through 20, we get a recap of where Joseph was at in his career as the ruler of Egypt. He was the governor over the land, and most importantly, he was the grain broker. He was responsible for selling food during the famine, not only to the people of Egypt, but to foreign travelers. The taxation and reserve scheme that was revealed to Joseph when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams had been so successful that Egypt accumulated more grain that they could count, more than they could measure, and so they had enough to not only sell to their own people, but to all the surrounding nations. So Egypt prospered not only during the years of plenty, but during the years of famine by taking the wealth of the nations through this trade. Joseph was a very good and effective governor. So the brothers come to buy grain. And they meet with Joseph. Now, they don't recognize Joseph when they see him. 
but Joseph recognizes them. Now, there could be any number of reasons why Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. For one, there is what they would be expecting to see. They had sold Joseph into slavery over 20 years prior. They had no idea where he had gone, what he had done. For all they knew, he was dead. Certainly, young men sold into slavery in foreign countries don't end up running those countries. Also, given that Joseph was now an Egyptian governor, he likely looked and dressed and carried himself more like an Egyptian. You see the old paintings and statues and of pharaohs and other important ancient Egyptians. They've got the headdresses and such, and Joseph probably looked something like that. Not the way he would have looked when he was a Canaanite shepherd. Of course, this too is in the Lord's hands. Joseph's brothers don't recognize him because they're not supposed to. Because God is going to work in this situation to reveal and record what is true of them now after so many years. Now, it probably came as quite a shock for Joseph to see his brothers after so long. Remember that in naming Manasseh, Joseph said that God had caused him to forget his father's house. He probably thought he was done with them, wouldn't see them again, wouldn't have to deal with them again. For after all, it was their wickedness that landed him in Egypt in the first place, and it was because of that that he underwent all of the suffering and trials he had. He probably wasn't that excited to see his brothers again. But they do come, and he does recognize them. In fact, they bow to him. But he acts like he doesn't know them. He speaks roughly. He speaks harshly to them. Probably in the typical tone an Egyptian governor would use on foreign commoners. Also read later, he's speaking through an interpreter. He does not want them to recognize him at this point. Perhaps there is a bit of lingering resentment. He remembers what his brothers did to him, and thus he doesn't really want to see them. But he does subject them to a bit of interrogation. He asks them where they came from. They tell him they are from Canaan. They have come to buy food. And it is not meaningless that when Joseph's brothers came, they bowed to him. Remember what started all of this. Joseph had dreams that his brothers and even his father and his father's wife would all bow to him. Though all temporal developments militated against that ever coming to pass, God orchestrated things such that the dreams he gave Joseph all those years before would come true and did come true. Joseph remembers this at that very moment, but his brothers had no idea. He decides to press them further and determine what's going on with his family under the guise of national security interest. He does this first by accusing his brothers of being spies in verse 8. He says they've come to spy out the nakedness of the land. They've come to see how impoverished and weakened Egypt is in this time of lack so that they might report back and there be an invasion or something of the sort. Now this isn't true, and Joseph knows it's not true. But he knows that they don't know that he knows. 
He's holding all the cards, all the power, all the authority in this situation, and he's going to use it. But his brothers are surprised. They're taken aback by this. In verse 10, they start pleading, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all one man's sons, and we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Now, given his history with them, Joseph might have snickered a bit at the claims of their being honest men. And yet Joseph is also using this as an opportunity to find out what has gone on in his family in the last 20 years. But to keep them on their toes, in verse 12, he again repeats the accusation that they are spies, to which the brothers again respond that they are brothers. There were 12 of them, but one was back home with their father, and one was no more. One was dead. So it seems at this point they believe that Joseph likely has perished somewhere along the way. Or at least they've been telling the story long enough to Jacob and others that it was second nature to them. So Joseph decides to test them, to toy with them a little bit. He tells them they cannot leave unless their younger brother is brought there. One of them can go back and fetch him, but the rest have to stay. To show that he is serious, he puts all of them in jail for three days. Now here it can be asked, was Joseph sinning? Was he doing wrong by his brothers by keeping up this deception and dealing harshly with them? John Calvin, for one, thinks yes. While Joseph lived in Egypt and kept himself unstained by the pagan culture around him, his dealing so harshly with his brothers is not right. Also, Calvin faults Joseph here for swearing by the name of Pharaoh, because that is to swear falsely. One of the features of our reform doctrine is that it does take seriously the matter of oaths. It's not something we think or care about much in our day, but we should. In our Westminster Confession, we affirm that if we swear an oath, it is a solemn act and should be done only in God's name. Joseph should not have sworn at all in this case, and if he ever swore an oath, he should do it in the name of the true and living God, not the pagan Pharaoh. All this to say, Joseph didn't particularly need to be so harsh with his brothers. It seems perhaps even he had some remorse for this harshness, for when he brings them out after the three days, he gives them a better deal. He will let all of them return home with grain, except one. And he promises them safe passage if they return with Benjamin, and they are agreeable to these terms. But though there has been a bit of fun and games, even harshness on the part of Joseph thus far, the crushing weight of what is going on and what it means is about to come to bear. And this brings us to our final point. After the task and the test, we come to the torment, which we see starting in verse 21 and going through the rest of the chapter. The first part of the torment comes after the brothers accept Joseph's terms. They talk among themselves. This is where we find out that Joseph has been speaking to them through an interpreter, which helps to keep up this ruse, probably also makes his harshness seem extra harsh. 
So the brothers start talking in their native language, and they think that Joseph can't understand them, but he can. And they talk about how they are guilty concerning their brother, how they were guilty concerning Joseph, how they had done him wrong. They thought Joseph was dead, and they acknowledged that they were guilty of what they did to him. And their current plight is punishment for that. Now, this is probably truer than they realize because Joseph's harshness with them has been to test them, but it also has been something of retaliation. He didn't really need to throw them in jail, but he did. He didn't really need to treat them harshly, but he does. It seems that in certain ways his power had gone to his head and he wanted to treat his brothers in wrath and revenge. Starting in verse 22, Reuben speaks. Now it was Reuben, the oldest of Jacob's sons, who initially tried to prevent this evil to Joseph. He was the one who had plans to go back and save Joseph from the well and send him home, only to come back later and find out that he was gone. Reuben reminds them that he did not want this, though he also acknowledges his and their guilt for what has happened. He says that Joseph's blood is now required of them. One of them is going to be left behind, perhaps even die, because Jacob will certainly not part with Benjamin. It is at this point of hearing his brothers acknowledge their guilt that we see Joseph has to leave. He turns away from them and weeps. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to deal with after all this time, seeing his brothers again, but also knowing that they are sorry. They are contrite. They are repentant for what they did to him. But after he weeps, he comes back to them and decides to hold Simeon as prisoner while the others return to their father. Simeon was the second oldest. The logical thing would have been to hold Reuben, the oldest son, but Joseph realizes that Reuben did not mean him evil, and so he passes him over. Then it is time for the brothers to return. Joseph commands his servants to fill their sacks with grain, but also to slip their money back into the bags and some provisions for the trip. We see here an about face by Joseph. He goes from being a bit petty and begrudging and harsh to his brothers to now treating them well. Of course, this backfires a bit. As they were on the way, one of them opens their sack to feed the animals and finds the money in there, and they think they're in trouble. They think that this Egyptian governor, who had been so harsh to them, would now accuse them of stealing. They ask, what is this that God has done to us? They acknowledge that God is sovereign in this, perhaps to further punish them in the matter of Joseph. So they come back to Jacob. They tell him all that happened. This includes the news of this governor who for some reason was very harsh to them. The fact that he kept Simeon. The fact that he demanded that they bring Benjamin. And then after this, all of them open their sacks and find their money inside. And here, all the brothers and Jacob are afraid. And Jacob lashes out against them. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. 
All these things are against me. He blames the brothers for what has happened. Now they were guilty in the matter of Joseph, and they knew it. They were not guilty, however, in the matter of Simeon, nor was anything bad actually going to happen to Simeon. But they didn't know that. They had no reason to not believe that. But Jacob is still unwilling to send Benjamin so that he might save his other son from whatever fate he might befall in Egypt. Reuben, in verse 37, tries to plead with Jacob to get him to change his mind. He even offers that Jacob could kill his two sons if he does not return with Benjamin. Now, this is not exactly a pious offer. The people of God were not to practice human sacrifice or anything of the sort. But it did show that Reuben was serious. He would make sure that Benjamin was safe. But Jacob was unrelenting. He was going to keep Benjamin at his side at all costs, even if this meant leaving Simeon to die in Egypt. Jacob just can't shake his favoritism. He believes that if he loses Benjamin, the grief will kill him, notwithstanding that they are against a famine that could kill them all. But circumstances will be such that his hand will be forced. Because God works all things, even this worldwide famine, for the good of his people. All this is happening so that God might reunite and reconcile his people and care for them and provide for them. The famine is not going away. They'll have to go back. And Jacob will have to relent from his favoritism. And the brothers will have to face Joseph again. So we've seen today in our text many difficult and harsh things that God's people have faced. Some of it unavoidable, like famine. Some of it born out of bitterness and resentment and the consequence of past sins, the way Joseph treated his brothers. Some of it is interpreted as divine punishment from God, the brothers believing that that is why they've been treated this way. But know that God is working all of it for his glory and the good of his people. All of this is ultimately leading to their salvation and deliverance. And truly all of God's purposes and actions through history All of his government of the world serves these purposes. This world continues. The people that live in it, live in it. The things that happen, happen for God's glory and the good and salvation of his people. Even through this ordeal of Joseph, God preserved the line of Israel because through them, One day one would come who would save his people, not from famine, but from their sin and from death. Jesus Christ would be born out of Israel's line. He would be born under the law, and yet himself, unlike all the people we've seen in this story, without sin. He would live, suffer, and die so that his people might be saved. And he reigns now as King of kings and Lord of lords over all things, even over 
the trials and hardships and difficult things that we face in this life. And so we can have confidence in this world that even as we face hardships, even as there are difficult things, things that hurt us, things we don't understand, God works them for our good. Even if they're not worked for good that we can know or see or understand in this life, ultimately we are delivered through death by Christ and into the life to come, into the eternal kingdom. So tonight, if you do not have that confidence, the call is to repent of your sins and receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered in the gospel and have life and hope in him. Perhaps tonight you're facing difficulties and hardships in this life and you don't know why, and maybe in this life you're never going to find out why. But just know that God is working. God is with you and he is for you. He works all things ultimately for his glory and for the good of his people, including you. May we all have that hope and confidence tonight. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We praise you for your sovereign rule over all things. Though we know that this world is stained by sin, that there are many difficulties and hardships that we as your people face, we know that your hand is working in it all. And though we may not understand and it may be hard for us, we know that you will turn all things for your glory and for our good. And so I pray that you would write that confidence on our hearts. Most of all, you would write on our hearts the hope of the gospel through which we have eternal hope and salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.